listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, well, before I read the text, let me mention a couple things. Uh, the topic today is glorifying God in your bodies. More specifically, we're going to talk about sexual sin and sexual immorality. But really today is not about a particularly scandalous uh, part of our lives, but it's about Jesus and his gospel. And so uh, I pray that, that I would strike the right tone today and that our hearts would be humbled and uh, that, that we would just fill this room, with, that the room would be filled with the, uh, with the warmth and the beauty and the satisfaction that exists only in God. There's a couple challenges um, that we have when we talk about this topic. Um, I, I could, I, we could do a whole series on just this issue. There's so much to say on this topic, but instead of saying too much, I'm gonna, just going to stick close to the text, and we're going to expand on what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. I also want us, to, as we're thinking about these issues, to consider the indulgence of our culture just to consider the, the malaise of carnality that we grow up in. I mean, even now, as we speak, there is probably the, one of the top two or three movies out right now is a movie called No Strings Attached. Maybe some of you have watched it. My friends, this movie is about just casual sex that eventually grows into a love relationship, as if then those two people that fall in love through this casual, casual relationship then become married and it all sort of works out in the end. We know, friends, that that's not the way it works. There are strings attached to our lives and to our bodies and to our sexuality. We also live in a world of, 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 that is just saturated with carnality and sex. I mean, next weekend, after we get done with the missions conference, we will go home. Uh, at least I'm going to do this. I don't know if you're going to do this. I'm going to hopefully take a nap, which is not likely because I have four children. And I'm going to prep myself for the Super Bowl. And as we're watching the Super Bowl, we will, be, we will be assaulted with ads where Xerox machines or Pepsi or Coke or cars or websites or whatever will be pitched to us by, by unrealistically attractive young ladies who are scantily clad, speaking to us in a sensual tone about Xerox machines. <laughs> I didn't know that copying was so sexy. Because they're wanting to tune in. Listen, men, they're wanting to tune in to your flesh, which is, a, which is a difficult bait to resist. We live in a world that is inundated with broken views of pleasure. We need to realize that. And then the third thing that I want us to realize before I read the text and we expand on it is that God, that there is a culture, and I think it's an incorrect culture that often exists in churches that want to live well and they want to encourage their people, but what sort of happens as an unintended undercurrent is this notion that God is somehow against our pleasure or against our joy. Nothing could be further from the truth. And so undergirding everything that I am going to say today and everything that Paul says, everything that we think about today is this beautiful notion that God's glory is not mutually exclusive with our joy. In fact, true joy, even let's be more specific, true sexual pleasure can only be found in God's way. 
that God's glory, God's way is not exclusive with our complete and utter fulfillment, but in fact it's the only place that we truly find it. And so if we've grown up in a notion that being a Christian is gritting your teeth and enduring, then I pray that the Holy Spirit would help us unwind that. God is all wise and all good, and His glory is where true joy exists. Well, let's read 1 Corinthians 6. I'll read all the way through and pray, and then we'll, then we'll work back through it. If you're uh, visiting with us for the first time today, you picked a good Sunday. <laughs> awesome. All right, let's go. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord for wisdom and humility. Lord, thank you for this beautiful text. Thank you, Lord, for the freedom that comes from a commitment to Scripture and preaching through Scripture so that the result of today is not my hobby horse or not my righteousness or not a church's morality or not any one particular person's sin, but because this is what's next in Corinthians. So thank you for the freedom that comes with your divinely inspired word. You know how to order things better than we do. But having said that, Lord, we know that in your providence, each day was ordained for us. And so this day has come about, and this text lands on this day for a reason. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us as your children realize that you are good. You are a wise and gracious Father who knows how to give good gifts to your children. And so today, as I speak on these things, I confess my own brokenness in this very area. Lord, I have fallen many times, but through your tender mercy, you have made me right before you. And God, I thank you for the wholeness in my life in this area now that is because of your grace alone. But Lord, I have a tremendous compassion and mercy for people who may even today be caught in the snares of, of folly and sin in this area of sexual immorality. So Lord, would you come and do what only you can do? And would you break chains? And would you clarify truth? And would you encourage the weak? And would you humble the proud? And would you 
most of all today, Lord, would you let Jesus stand forth as the true way for us. Today, Lord, is not about sex and sin and immorality primarily, but it is about the gospel of life. It is about what Christ has done on his cross to redeem us from sin and death and all of its consequences so that we might live for you in joy. Tune us into that truth as we think about these things, and I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I've got five points that arise from this text, and then I'm going to give you, as a conclusion, just some pastoral thoughts that I, I pray will help us. Let's go back to verse 12. Uh, a lot of times when people are reading this text, out if you're reading, I'm reading out of the ESV version, uh, the English Standard Version, I think a very faithful, newer edition of the Bible uh, that I would highly recommend. Uh, maybe you have an NASB, North American, uh, new, new, North American, <laughs> sorry, New American Standard Bible, uh, have these phrases and quotations. I think maybe if you're reading out of the NIV, it doesn't. So sometimes it's easy to think that maybe Paul is just saying this, but what Paul is doing here in verse 12 is he is taking a common phrase in the Corinthian culture and he's quoting it as if saying, you say this, but this is really the truth. So in verse 12, you'll notice that there are quotation marks around a few statements that Paul redirects. He says, all things are lawful for me, quotation marks. In other words, that's what the Corinthian people were saying. They were they were incorrectly understanding the liberty that comes with being a Christian and maybe adopting a current sort of um, idiomatic expression or cultural phrase in Corinth, and they were then applying that truth to their freedom in Christ incorrectly. And they were saying, all things are lawful for me. But Paul then corrects them into the quotation marks. Yeah, but not all things are helpful. And they go on and he repeats it again, all things are lawful for me. In other words, the Corinthians were saying that I am free to do whatever I want. And they were buying into a sort of Greek philosophical mindset that the body was not that important and you could basically do whatever you want and that all that really matters was that your soul and your mind was set upon God and these 70 or 80 years in this sort of rented facility of the body doesn't really matter and so we'll kind of do whatever we want. We're free as long as we believe in Christ we kind of can do whatever we want. What they were doing was they were allowing the, the, the pagan Greek mindset of a dualism between the body and the mind to bleed into their faith and they were minimizing the importance of how we actually live in the flesh. And so they're saying, oh, well, anything goes. And Paul's saying, yeah, but by your arrogance in saying that you're free, you're actually being enslaved by the passions of your body. And that's what he's saying in verse 12. And then in verse 13, there's another quotation mark. And this is to a picture into just how depraved this culture was and, 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 and how depraved we are. They're saying food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So what's underlying there is that they're saying, hey, listen, because Paul's about to correct them for their broken sexual views. They were arguing that, hey, listen, sex, urges, they're just like the appetites. I mean, when we get tired, we sleep. When we're thirsty, we need to drink. When we're hungry, we eat. And when we have urges, we take care of them. So that's what we do. And so that was their line of thinking. Well, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And Paul's then quoting back to them their broken logic. And, but he's saying, no, but God will destroy both the one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord 
and the Lord for the body. And so point number one from these few verses is, and these are, listen, this is not rocket science. These five points that I'm going to have, we're just going to work our way through the text. Point number one is simply this. Our bodies are meant for God. Our bodies are meant for God. The Corinthians, because of their excess and indulgence and their arrogant claims of independence, were actually being led down a road to bondage. They saw sex like a mere physical need. They were also almost reducing the beauty of sexual desire down to animalistic urges, as if they were dogs in heat that just needed to to just do what dogs in heat do, as if it's on the same level as hunger or thirst or sleep. And Paul is redirecting in him. He's saying, no, our bodies are actually valuable in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, we're going to get to this in 1 Corinthians 15. Do you realize that your body is, is going to be with you forever? You, we, our bodies will be resurrected. Jesus even now reigns with a, a real, resurrected, perfect body. We will die unless Jesus comes back before we die. Our bodies will be in the grave. And then not only our soul, but our spirit, our bodies will live forever. And here's the good news for some of you that that just became a very discouraging thought. <laughs> I know the feeling. Believe me, I'm breaking down. I'm 40 now. And things crack and pop. And, and don't, in fact, just yesterday I was throwing the football in the front yard with my son. And I tried to, like, run a little pattern for him. Oh, goodness. I mean, if I had to, listen, if you want to pickpocket me on the street, man, now's the time. Because if I had to chase you, it would not go well for me. But the good news is, is that our, our bodies are resurrected and glorified. Our flesh, this, in some sense, in a mysterious, beautiful, resurrected way, our bodies will be with us forever. So Paul is underscoring that by saying that these bodies, just as Jesus was raised, you will be raised. These bodies that we have are important. The body has tremendous value to God, how we live, what we do with our bodies matters. What we wear, what we eat matters to God and should matter to us. And if we've been sort of caught up in this mindset that well, I can accept Christ with my mind and these 70 or 80 years in this fleshly tent really don't matter that much, do you realize that you are buying into a lie that dates all the way back to this Greek dualism? Paul is arguing for the beauty and the value of God's creation. In fact, the splendor of the human body. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says that we were made in His image. What does that mean? I don't think it means that God has a body in a sense, although Jesus came and took on flesh. But it means that even your body, even have you ever just looked at just the glorious splendor? That, have you looked in an ear? I mean, a nose? Just a see a little baby born, a couple babies were born just this past week, they have eyelashes and eyebrows and little wrinkles and fingerprints, I mean just the glorious splendor of your, of your digestive system, it is glorious, it's glorious, joints, I mean just look at the knee, it's unbelievable how it works, 
And sometimes how it doesn't work. But all of that echoes this divine imprint of God's splendor on the human body. And Paul is saying that these bodies are, are meant for God. Listen, look at this verse. Where is it? It's in verse, it's in verse, verse 13. It says, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now, let, let's define what sexual immorality because we don't want to assume anything in here. And don't worry, parents, it's not going to get too thick if your middle schooler's in here. No need for earmuffs, I don't think. Although you might have to come behind and explain some things. <laughs> sexual immorality, the Greek word literally there is a word, porneia, which from which we get the word pornography, but it doesn't just mean pornography. It literally means, it would be best maybe translated fornication in English. So sexual Immorality is fornication. What is fornication? Fornication is any and all sexual contact outside of God's ordained means of marriage. I don't have time to explain all of that, but I think you can take my word for that. I think most of you probably have um, enough church time in you to realize that. It's not just because church culture. It's because of the scripture. Sexual immorality is any contact. It is not just intercourse between a man and a woman. That's a lie of our culture that how far is going too far if we didn't go all the way and actually connect and have intercourse that maybe that's not sexual immorality. No. Any sexual, let me just give you just kind of a, I think what is a good rule of thumb is any, any heavy petting, any clothes off, any, basically anything I think beyond just a very light kissing. And if you are not married, I would even recommend not doing that, because I think, at least in my experience, it is very difficult to, if you have a boyfriend or a girlfriend, kiss them without it progressing into lust and rubbing your bodies together and hormones flowing. And it's very, very difficult to stop that snowball when it gets on the other side of the hill. It's an avalanche that none of us are strong enough to, to stop. And so sexual immorality is any sexual contact, not just intercourse, but any sexual contact, any touching of any erogenous zones, and you know, heads, shoulders, knees and toes, knees and toes, you know what I'm saying? I mean, there are places that are not sexual, shoulders are not sexual, this is sexual, this is, that, that's areas of, you know what I'm talking about. And I think that any touching, any petting, any grinding, any full frontal contact on that with anybody that is not your spouse falls within that view of sexual immorality. It is cause anything that causes you to think sexually about somebody who is not your spouse, whether it is a computer screen or a magazine or a chat room, or a conversation, or obviously physical touch, is sexual immorality. Do not buy into the lie that anything short of actual physical penetration is not sexual immorality. Friends, that lie will lead you straight to destruction. Now, we could go further. 
but I'm going to assume that you are picking up what I'm laying down. All right, so that's sexual immorality. And Paul is saying that the body is not for that, that it's for God. But listen, lest you now get the broken notion that now God is somehow against your joy and your pleasure, he then says that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord. So your body is merely a conduit of God glorifying living. And listen to this. This is, sh- this is shattering here to this broken religious death-inducing view that God isn't for pleasure. It says, and the Lord is for the body. So God is not sort of detached from his creation, young man, giving you parts that swell with blood. And young lady, you with this feeling in your stomach, just wanting a man to love you. God is not detached from that. He, in fact, gave that for you to be exercised in his intended way of marriage. And when you exercise it that way, he is for them and he wants to pour out blessing and pleasure and exuberance and mind shattering pleasure for you. God is for that. And if there's any sense in your mind because of some fundamentalist religious upbringing that didn't understand joy and pleasure in Christ, I pray that right now God would break that in your mind. So God is for pleasure. This is what Psalm 1611 says, it says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In other words, all that there is to joy and sexual connection with your spouse, spouse is joyous, or at least it should be. And the psalmist is saying it's there at your right hand. Listen to this. Listen to the, the hedonism in this text. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's what the psalmist says. I've read this quote many, many times here at Crosspoint, probably 10 or 15. But I think it bears reading again from C.S. Lewis, the great British author. He wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory. This is so good. He wrote in his book, The Weight of Glory, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. In other words, faith. In other words, even let's not personalize it to what we're talking about today, that if, that if God is somehow opposed to our enjoyment of sexual pleasure, that he's saying erase that from your minds. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. I think what Lewis is speaking about there is eternal infinite joy with Christ, but I think we can reduce it down to even just our sexual desires and passions. We just give in. We give in as, as, if, as if God is somehow holding us back from something that would be pleasurable. No, no, no. God has such, even here in this life, such beautiful joy reserved for his children in sexual pleasure. And so 
The first point is, is that our bodies are meant for God. Secondly, let's keep reading verses 15 through 17. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then, these are hard words, friends, and I don't want to overspeak, but I don't want to under, I don't want to minimize the, the severity of what Paul is saying here. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. What Paul is saying here is what's going on in the context of the Corinthian churches. They were having these sort of orgies where uh, oftentimes, even in the temple or around the temple at times, evidently some Christians were having these big dinner parties. And it was expected in the Corinthian culture to have, when after there was a big dinner party, oftentimes they would just hire in prostitutes to come and satisfy the needs of sexual urges of the men there. And evidently this was going on in the church. And so Paul in this particular instance is talking about prostitution, but I think this applies to all sexual immorality, all, all sex outside of marriage, all sexual contact outside of marriage. And he says, do you not know, verse 16, that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Friends, listen to me now. Tune in. If you've been kind of tuned out and just let the dust settle here for a second. Think about the severity of what Paul is saying. He's saying that you are, in fact, this is our second point here, that our bodies are united with Christ. And understanding this point really informs us to what happens when we engage in sexual immorality. Paul is saying that you are so united to Christ in your salvation if you're a Christian that literally when you sin, that you are actually, in a mysterious way here, taking Jesus with you. Does that mean that if you are having sex outside of marriage or sexual contact outside of marriage that you're making Jesus sin? Well, no, of course not. We can't make Jesus sin. Jesus is perfect. But do you realize the severity? Paul is saying, rhetorically, how could you join Christ to that prostitute. Christ is so, your being now, your identity is so wrapped up in Christ that when you do this, you're taking Jesus with you to that person or to that computer screen or to that place. That is a heavy statement. Our bodies are united with Christ. Let's keep going. Verse 18. And then he says, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This brings us to our third point. Point number one is our bodies are, our bodies are meant for God. Point number two, our bodies are united with Christ. And point number three, it's almost like he interjects this warning in the middle of these verses, and he says, flee for your own good. Men, if you are coddling or minimizing or flirting with sexual temptation, do you realize that you are not strong enough to hold that up? Paul does not say, back the relationship down to friendship. Paul says, flee. Don't flirt with it. Flee. Men or women, do you have, this is my conviction here, but do you have friends 
of the opposite gender that are not your spouse. I mean, in a sense, I think we have friends, brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, but I don't have any friends that are women. <laughs> to the sense where you'd call them up and just say, hey, how you doing? What's going on? Do you, what is that? Do you, friends? I have sisters in Christ and acquaintances, but I have nobody that I share my heart with that is not my wife. And if you are a man and you have a friendship with a woman that is not your wife or somebody that works in your office, do you realize that you are playing with fire? You're playing with fire. Paul says, flee from this thing. Don't coddle it. There's a proverb that says, how can a man heap burning coals under his lap and not be burned? If you are on the brink, if you are struggling, and we're going to talk about some strategies here in just a moment, but if you are on the brink of, of, of crossing some line, the fact that you're even close to that line is an indication that your heart is compromised. You can't minimize this thing. Your flesh is stronger, and the devil is more bent on your destruction than you could ever imagine. If you have an inappropriate conversational relationship going on with somebody that is not your spouse, you can't back that down to friendship and then coexist in the office. You've got to sever that thing. Now! Flee! Don't flirt! Don't coddle! Don't minimize! Flee! For your own good! Flee! Paul says... And then he moves into our fourth point, which is, I think, so encouraging because he's not just saying muster up your strength and, and, and exercise your morality. He's now giving us the underpinning of why we can flee. Verse 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Verse 20, for you were bought with a price. This brings us to our fourth point. Friends, do you realize that our bodies were bought by Jesus? They were bought by Christ's blood on the cross. Do you realize that you can flee because you have been bought by Christ? You are not your own. This is what it means to be a Christian. When you are a Christian, you repent. You trust in Jesus. And at that moment, you are born again. And Christ righteousness and character gets imputed to you. That's what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says that God the Father made him, meaning Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So literally, the righteousness of Christ gets imputed to the believer. You get purchased. You are bought. You are no longer your own, young man. You are no longer your own, and the young girl that you may be engaged with, she is not yours either. She's not even, she doesn't belong to herself. She belongs to Jesus if she's a Christian. And in a sense, everything in the world belongs to God. Psalm 24 says that everything in the world belongs to God. And so I'm not saying that we can flee from mustering up morality. We flee because intrinsically our identity and our strength now is Strength that comes from Christ's work on the cross, not our own. And from that, Paul says, we can flee. This is what Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian and prime minister in the early 1900s said, and I think this is such a beautiful quote. 
We have it running on the loop before services, so maybe some of you have read it. He says, listen to this. Oh, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And so in Cairo, Egypt, Jesus sovereignly proclaims in that pagan government and Muslim city, mine. And over the White House, Jesus, even as it seems things may be going astray, he cries, mine. And over Columbus and its government and all of its businesses and all of its affairs, and, and over Fort Benning, Jesus cries, mine. And over this church and over this pastor and over everything that goes on here, Jesus cries, mine. And over your neurological system and over even the lungs coming, the, the air coming in and out of your lungs and the blood circulating through your circulatory system, Jesus cries, mine. And even over the impulses and the emotional desires and the sexual tension and the urges and every desire of every heart, Jesus cries, mine. Do you realize that Jesus is sovereign over all? He's not a distant deity who's there just to transact eternal salvation. He is intimately involved with every cell, every particle, every atom that is colliding against one another in some distant galaxy. Even in your very heart and life, Jesus cries, Mine! Young man, do you realize that? Our bodies were bought by Jesus. And therefore, point five as the natural consequence of these truths. We should glorify God with our bodies. We should glorify God with our bodies and what we wear, what we touch, what we give ourselves to. And that when we glorify God with our bodies, that is where true joy is, and specifically speaking about sexual, sexual pleasure and sexual life when we reserve our sexuality for our spouse alone, God is glorified and we find much joy. Now, briefly, a few thoughts, some pastoral thoughts on glorifying God with our bodies. Number one, hear me on this one. God delights in restoring sexually broken and sinful people. God delights in restoring sexually broken and sinful people. If you have been listening to these truths and if we could really unpack your baggage this morning and you would be so ashamed of your past or even your present, do you realize that you're the type of person that God saves and rescues? Romans 4, 5 says that God justifies the ungodly. That's what he does. Do you realize that everybody in this room that has gone through puberty is sexually broken and has sinned? And if you're self-righteous, you say, no, 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 not me. Oh, oh really? Really? 
if you have passed through puberty and you've even thought about something outside of God's plan, that is, you're broken. You've sinned. So put that in your pipe and smoke it and stop being so proud. <laughs> and do you realize that God delights in rescuing and redeeming sexually broken people so that he would renew them for his glory? And do you realize the beauty and the depth of salvation? That when Christ saves you, he, he brings what is dead back to life. And so you may have squandered your life. Listen to me, young lady, who lost your virginity and can't get over that. Do you realize that when Christ saves you, and he takes that sin and he removes it as far as the east is from the west. You realize that he recreates newness in you? He recreates purity in you? And for you to buy into that broken, faulty logic that, well, I know I'm a Christian, but I've already done this, so I might as well just do it again. Because do you realize you are completely missing the beauty of salvation in that moment? That, that Christ has made you new again. He's made you pure again. And so why would you trample over Christ's work again? Do you realize the beauty and the benefits of salvation? He repurifies you. And so you're not soiled. You're, you're not wasted. You're, your beauty and your purity has been restored in Christ again. Don't buy into that logic that, oh, well, I've done it. I might as well just keep doing it. I'm just one of the ones that will never get to be pure. Not true. God delights in healing and restoring and making new the sexually broken. God delights in that. He did it for me. And he can do it for you today too. As you turn from broken, trusting in yourself and you trust in Christ. Second pastoral thought, men in particular, do you realize that you are not strong enough on your own? You are not strong enough on your own. I can't tell you how many times I've spoken to men whose lifelong besetting sin is battling pornography, but yet they've never taken the step to speak to their wife about that or they've never taken the step to ensure that they have some accountability on their internet. Do you realize you're not strong enough on your own? You can go six months, you can go a couple years. The devil has been at this game a lot longer than you have. Do you realize you can feel strong and then all of a sudden you'll get blindsided? Do you realize you're not strong enough on your own? Men, if you do not have protections and guardrails up in your life, you, you, are, you are living very unwisely. I personally have an accountability software on my computer that every two weeks sends a report of all the websites that I may visit that might be questionable, not to Reynolds or Don or Paul, or Hawk, but to Jennifer. And do you realize what the light of accountability does to a man's soul when he might even consider clicking on something that he doesn't want to click on? It burns it up and it 
quenches, it just extinguishes that desire. Men, we don't have time to get into it right now, but if you are struggling with internet pornography, I want to tell you one thing. Pornography is never satisfied. You can't stop there. You cannot, you cannot contain a forest fire. If you are struggling with internet pornography, please, please talk to me after service. Talk to Reynolds or Don after service. We have some resources to help you. We have some accountability programs and filters that will help you. If you are doing that by yourself, you cannot do it. You will get destroyed. And if you think that you can somehow just sort of off in this little corner deal with this little thing occasionally called, called pornography, and as if that won't then empty into the rest of your life, you are, you are ridiculously naive. You're ridiculously naive. Pornography kills your heart. It kills your wife's heart. It sullies even the very way that you view women. And ultimately, friends, it is never satisfied with computer images. It always pushes on men to act out in the flesh. You are not strong enough on your own. And point number three now, pastoral thoughts. Don't trust in your own wisdom. You may be 23 years old in here. You're sitting next to your girlfriend and you guys have been going too far. Maybe you've even been having sex, but you would consider yourself a Christian. And the first thing that you want to say when you get out of here is, sweetheart, I mean, yeah, Brad's a good guy. We like Crosspoint. Music's good. I can wear jeans, coffee. Life point group, I do my thing. It's kind of cool. I like the way he talks, but I mean, we're married in our hearts. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're sinning in your pants. That's what you're doing. <laughs> you're not married in your hearts. Don't, don't look into his eyes and see that twinkle. He's wrong and he's lying to you. Punch him in the face, call him Lucifer, and run. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting off script. Let me really bring it back in. Now, but I, really, I want to I plead with you for a second. We're the most arrogant generation ever. Let me get this straight. Let me get this straight now. In your 25 years, the wisdom, or even less, in your 18 years, or your, 20, or your 35 years, or your 50 years, the wisdom that you have accrued in your unbelievably infinitesimally small life experience, really, that's more informed than the wisdom of God's scriptures? <laughs> really? 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 I mean, just, I plead with you just to weigh it in the scales of justice here. Really? No, no, we can, we can do it. It won't come back to bite it. No, it, Come on, Holmes. Seriously, don't rely on your... You grew up on The Simpsons and MTV. And you're going to trust in that cultural pot? Come on. Come on. Don't trust in your own wisdom. We're not here to beat you up you're running headlong into destruction. And God right now graciously, even through this message, might be calling you back to life. Don't trust in your own wisdom. Young lady, I don't care if he seems like a good catch. If he's leading you down this path, even now I believe the Holy Spirit is 
calling you to put brakes on this. Really? Really, young lady? Do you have enough wisdom to sort through that and think, oh, we'll make it? Really? Don't trust in your own wisdom. Trust in the wisdom of the scriptures. Trust in the collective wisdom of the people of God. Trust in Christ. And finally, I end with this. Fight sexual temptation. Fight broken desires with grace-filled fierceness and the pursuit of joy. What do I mean by that? First, fight with grace-filled fierceness. Do you realize that we are just, by default, just wimpy people that give in? Do you realize that we just, so easily, because we can click the clicker, we can heat it up in the microwave, we can get in the car. I mean, when the satellite goes out on our TV, we just can't believe. What? 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 Ah! DirecTV, what planet are you from? Mediacom, you stink. Knowledge, I'm calling. Because the TV's been out for two minutes. God forbid we push through and endure. And do you realize the laziness that creates in us? And so some temptation comes your way, you're like, click. Some girl winks at you, hey. Some guy gives you some attention, and maybe you've never had any, oh, you just, we just give ourselves to stuff so easily because we don't know how to fight. Do you realize that when Christ saves you, he gives you his righteousness and his character, and he fills you with his Holy Spirit, and he gives you the ability to say no. Fight. Pull up your bootstraps. You don't have to give in. You don't have to take your pants off. You don't have to download porn. You don't have to have HBO. You don't have to let your life be eaten by worms. Who says? Who says? You don't have to wear your belly button exposed. You don't have to wear clothes that attract some wolf. You don't need that boy. You don't need that job. You don't need the validation of your friends. They're lost as the day is long. You don't need that music. You don't need that channel. Resist. Not in your own power, but because Christ lives in you, Christian. Fight with grace-filled fierceness. Some of you in this room have been shot at by by evil people in Iraq and Afghanistan. If you're a soldier, you know what it is to fight. You've been in a foxhole before. You can put on a flak vest. You're a warrior, man. So don't crumble in front of the computer screen. God made you for more than that. Fight, resist. Not because you're strong, but because Christ is strong in you. You can do this, young man. You can do this, young lady. You can do it because Christ is mighty to save. He's mighty to save. So fight with grace-filled fierceness. And, and this is where, I, this I think is really the key to it all. At least when I came across this truth, it transformed my ability to resist temptation. 
and live for God-ordained joy. Fight not only with a grace-filled fierceness, but fight as you pursue joy. Fight realizing that what God offers you is not gritting your teeth, enduring sort of this chaste, pleasureless existence, but fight as you pursue, even here in this life, unbelievable joy. God is not opposed to pleasure. He is for it. He is all for it. And so as you, as you in your grace-filled fierceness, resist broken expressions of your sexuality, realize that God has something for you here. And, and by the way, for the very few of us in this room that might be called to singleness, and there are some, I'm sure, Friends, do you realize that the treasures and the joy that God has stored up for you in heaven? Oh, oh, what are these 80 years? What are these 80 years? Do you realize that the pleasure in every form, do you realize that even sexual pleasure at its fullest height here on this earth is just a piece of sand and a beach of pleasure that God has stored up for the Christian in eternal joy? And do you realize that it is our great privilege to long for that, man, to long for that? But for the rest of us in this room who might marry someday or are married and are on the brink of resisting or coming, breaking down to some broken form, realize that you are pursuing true joy. And God is all for your joy. He's all for your joy. And so as I resist that computer image, as I resist that TV program, as I resist that flirtatious look, I'm not just biting my tongue or jabbing myself with a spin. I'm looking forward to that next moment when I get to pour out my love and affection on my wife. God didn't make me blind when I became a pastor. But I look forward. I look, I look forward to that moment when I can exercise in satisfaction and faithfulness my sexual passion for my wife. Fight with joy in view. Fight to pursue true pleasure. I end with this. A quote from J.C. Ryle, a wonderful British theologian back in the late 1800s. I love this guy. If you ever have a book that's written by J.C. Ryle, read it. In fact, there's a book in the bookstore called Thoughts for Young Men. Young men, you would do well to read it. I love J.C. Ryle, not only for his wisdom, but he had this really cool beard. It looked like one of those beards that he started growing when he was 15 and he never shaved. He was a cool, cool cat, man. I don't know. Just, anyway, this is what J.C. Ryle says. And this quote is for you, friend, if you have made a mess of your life. This quote is for you if it's become evident to you in the past 50 minutes or so that you're not a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, here's what you need to do right now. Turn from, turn from trust in yourself. Turn from relying on your own power. Turn from your sins. And turn in faith towards Jesus. I think the very fact that you're even realizing this right now is evidence that God is wooing you to himself and saving you even now. He's given you, he's given you saving faith.
So exercise it in Jesus. This is what J.C. Ryle says. He says, I know not what you may have been in your past life. It means nothing. You may have broken every commandment under heaven. You may have sinned with a high hand against light and knowledge. You may have despised a father's warnings and a mother's tears. You may have run greedily into every excess of riot and plunged into every kind of an abominable behavior. You may, you may have turned back entirely on God, his day, his house, his ministers, his words. I say again, it matters nothing. Do you feel your sins? Are you sick of them? Are you ashamed of them? Are you weary of them? Then come to Christ just as you are. And Christ's blood shall make you clean. Oh, what a beautiful quote. What a beautiful quote. Are you sick of losing this battle? Come to Christ. Come to Christ, friend. His blood will make you clean. It did me. And it won't only just make you clean. It will fill you with joy so that you can pour out every passion and pleasure in God's intended way for his glory and your joy. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, thank you for this text and for these words from Paul. Come now, Holy Spirit, and do what spoken words cannot do. Do what preaching cannot do alone. And break into hard, rebellious hearts and comfort broken, hurting, discouraged hearts and melt proud, self-righteous, religious hearts and warm us with the all-satisfying beauty of Jesus. Lord, I'm thinking now of the scripture in James where it says, to him who knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it, to him it's sin. So Lord, if there is a man or woman in this room who has even as I've been speaking been convicted and chastened by your Holy Spirit, God, would they not leave this room without doing something? Whether it's coming down to pray, whether it's speaking to me or Reynolds or Don or a trusted brother or sister. Lord, would today's truth not be like water off of a duck's back, but God, would you with your Holy Spirit shoot that truth in like an arrow to our heart so that it would stick. And God, would some young man or some young woman or old woman or man in this room be able to count this day to say January 30th, 2011. On that day, the Lord began to lift my eyes from this brokenness. The Lord, that day, that day, God, would you do that? Would, would the wounded not leave this room 
not opening themselves up to the glory of your light and grace. Do that, I pray, Lord Jesus. And I pray this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.